Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And it's been a long fucking time, man. Um, I've, I've had quite a few months off from doing interviews. And uh, I put out two albums. I did two tours. I've got a whole bunch of uh, stuff on the horizon I wanted to talk to you about. And I'm also really excited about the new Justice League movie. So I'm going to do a full hour on that. But it's about 45 minutes in if you want to skip ahead. Shit, it's been a fucking crazy crazy couple of years man um this year we started out with the dfs album and the squalor tour went right back into the rare form uh winter tour that was our second leg the arcane amalgam release we had a whole episode i believe the last episode we did on this show was a little commentary track listening party for the arcane amalgam project um if you haven't heard I mean, you can listen to the episode, but a cool little super group I've got going on. Actually, my buddy from that project, uh, Sarks, started a new project called Guns. What fuck? Ghost Gods Guns. I'm going to fuck it up now. He's going to be mad. I've been giving him shit about changing his fucking name because he's been off the road for like five years now. But like we used to tour together and we hit, you know, every fucking city and state uh you know the illusionist and sarks over and over we'd we'd fucking uh tear it up together and uh you know he featured on our stuff and uh we featured on his stuff oh wait no we didn't because he never invited us you son of a bitch sarks and um you know it's cool to see him finally back you know he took a break uh grow into to parenthood got a got a couple kids he's raising now but um yeah, it's exciting to hear him drop some some brand new music. He just dropped a new song today. I believe it's called 19. And um, by the way, when I say today, I recorded this on uh, Saturday, but these episodes drop every uh, every other Tuesday. I don't know why I picked that, but uh, that's that's the routine that I follow. I'm very comfortable in my routine. You may have noticed this about me. Um, I was just saying to somebody that, uh, you know, it, and you're not supposed to say like, oh, I get, I'm so OCD about such and such or whatever. It's not like a verb. Um, but I, I, def- I definitely have something clinically wrong with me that I've never addressed um, uh, with a professional, um, you know, whether it's some form of, uh, it's, I don't know, it's kind of nauseating to me and people say like, oh, I'm on the spectrum but you know, it's it's like some some form of fucked up is, is what I am. I don't know. Uh, it's it's an OCD or a, a thing like that. I don't know. Um, but when I'm when I'm here and I'm in the studio, you know, I'm a workhorse and nothing can stop me. And then when I'm out in the real world, whether I'm at work or I'm driving around town or I'm traveling and I'm in another city or whatever, like any little fucking thing can just destroy me psychologically you know whether it triggers a rage thing or whatever or a, a an anxiety or who knows i mean it could be a fucking somebody staples something wrong at work and when i say wrong i mean like when they're not perfectly aligned in the corner and someone would just grab two pieces of paper haphazardly and put a staple in them permanently binding them and that would get so under my skin that I have to wait till no one's looking and go dig it out of the file, undo it, and redo it again. That's the kind of shit that I'm talking about, you know. Like, we're, 
were in some town I don't know, and I take a wrong turn, and now I have to drive around the block to get where I was going, which, you know, will set you back 90 seconds or something. But to me, that's like the most infuriating shit on the fucking planet. And, uh, man, I, I miss the creative routine because I had a creative routine and it kept me, uh, uh, it kept me focused. And one thing that the road does to me is it fucks that up big time. Um, we dropped this Arcane Amalgam project this summer. All the while that was going on, for the first time in two years, it's been more than two years now since my last solo album came out, if you can fucking believe that, Vacant Eyes, um, came out in 2015, uh, September, I think. And I've done a lot of different projects since then, but none of them have been like a dedicated solo album. And part of that reason is because I wanted to not repeat myself and have some life experience and go through some some different things and have something different to talk about and a different point of view, perhaps, to express. So I waited until I felt absolutely couldn't wait any longer to get something off my chest. You know, I needed to say something. And so um, in the spring and the summertime this year, I started working on my next solo album. Originally, Durazo was going to do it, and I ended up getting a couple from him, and then he kind of fell off the face of the earth and uh, retired again. And then I had a, a Graves and, sorry, Graves 33 from Seattle, if you're not familiar, uh, produced a lot of my stuff in the past. And uh, Intellectual out of L.A. and um, Web, uh, Web Beats, Web the Free Range Human, whatever you know him as. Uh, my old partner from The Illusionist gave me a couple tracks. Um, and Danny G from Double Dragon. You know, I got a few few people contributing to it, but it was kind of slow moving. And so uh, I, I felt like I really needed to write and I didn't have any tracks to put it on. And so I really, I put on my, my beat making hat and uh, it's not the f- first time, but I, I do it very, very rarely. And I haven't ever really just dove into this extent. Um, you know, I, I made the beat, the opening track on Break the Bank I made the beat for Slubber de Gullion on Rare Form. Oh, and the intro track, Rare Form, as well. Um, but really, not too much, man. It's been a long time since I've, I've, I've really uh, been doing this stuff at length. Usually it's just like, oh, I've got an idea. I think, you know, there's a bass line I could just play, you know, if I find the right drums or something like that, where it's like, oh, I don't think I need to tell someone the idea I have, I think I can actually do this. And so this need for beats really quick actually kind of opened up a door for me and I, I went down the rabbit hole making beats. And before I knew it, between everything that I had made, which was about about 10 tracks and everything that I had gathered from friends, um, I was looking at like a double album. And I say was because I'm really not sure what the final form will be. But um, last I looked, my playlist was something like 28 tracks. It might have even been up to 30. Um, and I was like, wow, I could do, I could do, and, and I kind of had it mapped out, you know, in playlists like, oh, this first disc, 
this track list is pretty much set in stone. This second disc um, still needs uh, some some more tracks to be finished to kind of flesh out the direction and the flow between the songs. But I, I you know, I had some pretty cool, and I don't know what it's going to end up like, but um, it's uh, it's exciting to me nonetheless. And um, so I just wanted to let people know that that is coming, and I'm really, uh, I'm actually trying to kind of pump the brakes on that project a little bit and maybe make some more beats of my own, possibly just do an entirely uh, self-produced project. I mean, and I, I, it's probably confusing the language that I use because I, I credit myself as the producer on all my records anyway because I, I arrange the songs and I, uh, you know, conceive them and, and, you know, work out every aspect of it uh, myself uh, aside from whoever, you know, usually emailed me a beat. And, and, you know, if we were to collaborate in the studio and, the, you know, they were coaching me on, on my performances or we were coming up with ideas together, you know, that'd be a different thing. And I would share that production credit. But um, what I mean to say is that uh, I'm considering just doing a full record where I make the beats, do the rhymes, engineer it, mix it, you know, everything. Um, and produce it all myself. I think that could be a fun challenge. But uh, also, I'm really just interested in whatever makes the best record. So if I can put my ego aside from uh, going, oh, I did everything. Or if I can put my ego aside from, oh, I made a double album. you know, And if I can whittle all that down to just the best possible record, that's, that's the goal honestly, because some of these songs are fucking really exciting to me. And I think that I've, I've, I've definitely outdone my previous work. Um, and, uh, in a couple ways, actually, one of the, the ways was, uh, that song wildfire. If, uh, you guys have been following, I dropped a song in September, right before the fall children tour that I did with Lisa Vasquez and gradient. And, uh, you know, it, it, it did okay. And then when that was my closing piece on the tour, it was this six minute diatribe. It was kind of like the type of song that I'll do like crisis of conscience or arms race or Ferguson free, right? You know, those, um, God paparazzi actually is the most recent example where, you know, I just had a little short chorus in the beginning, and then I did like two and a half minutes nonstop, just one big long verse kind of dissecting religion and Christianity in particular. And when the march happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, it was so mind-blowing to me that... I mean, not so much that it existed because I knew all those fuckers were out there, and especially with the presidency. Um, you know, we we knew that those those guys were starting to get bold. But the thing that fucked me up about it was like the the fact that they were backing the president, therefore the Republican Party. I mean not all of them, but I'm saying like on Facebook and on, you know, the talking heads on TV and shit, we're kind of siding with those 
white supremacist motherfuckers. And now all of a sudden it was becoming like a left versus right thing. And we're, we're like letting those guys align themselves with a major political party instead of being like, yo, this is uh, fucked up. They're fucking carrying swastikas. They're fucking Nazis. Like it went from uh, like Obama's a Nazi because it's fucking socialist medicine. You know, that's what they were saying. And then uh, when people started saying that shit in uh, the Trump rallies, he'd say some racist shit and he'd be like, oh, oh you know, throw them out, kick them out, you know, beat them up on the way out and shit like that. And you'd see all these white people chanting like, fuck you, get them out, you know, whatever. And, um, it had this super like hostile vibe, this very weird fascist quality about it that, you know, some people were like, yo, this kind of, this is like some early Hitler shit. This is, this is fucking weird and it's not right. And then you get those same people who called Obama, you know, Nazi for socialist medicine, um, Obamacare, they're going, whoa, just because you don't disagree with somebody doesn't mean they're fucking Nazi. Like, oh, everyone's a Nazi now? Everyone's a Nazi? Like, get, get the fuck out of here. You can't say that. You know, and they didn't see the parallel. And now people out there marching in the fucking streets and you got people going, uh, you notice, you happen to fucking notice that uh, these guys are real actual Nazis? Like real life in the flesh, carrying the flag next to our flag. You notice that? Wearing the fucking little Trump hat. You watch the interviews with these guys. You read what they have to fucking say. You look at their tweets. You know, like, no, nothing. And now all of a sudden, the left is anti-Nazi, which makes the left anti-right or something. It's it, it, it doesn't make any fucking sense. So... When it happened, it was like a few days before DFS left on the, the Blank Check tour, my punk band, Dead Fucking Serious. And that was in August. And I was so just overwhelmed watching this debate. Um, and I watched the Vice documentary for HBO. And I read, you know, every article, watched every cell phone video, you know, somebody was run over with that fucking event. And they, you hear these smug assholes going, yeah, you know, and uh, I think more people are going to die because people die every fucking day, you know. Uh, just acting real, like, uh, nonchalant about it. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to start we're gonna start the fucking new civil war, man. Like, you better get ready. And, uh, and then cut to, like, a couple days later, that same guy's posting a cell phone video like, help. Everyone's being so mean to me. I need the police to come and help get me out of here. And it's like, yeah, you're goddamn right. Because you're trying to start a fucking war. Pieces of shit. Can't go out there and cite violence and, and be like, oh, I'm glad when other people die. And then be like, I'm scared now. Can we stop? Can we be done? And so the night before this uh, DFS tour, the blank check tour, I spent hours and hours and I stayed up way too late knowing that we were going to have our first show the next day and uh, I wrote what was the longest piece I've ever put down and it was something like 72 bars or something like that it was it was it was a lot that I had to say and when I do these tracks again it's not like I'm trying to um, meet my quota on like topical <laughs> Like, oh, I got to have my one, 
you know, current events track or whatever for this album. It was, but it's like, it gets to the point where you can't not say something, you know? Like, I, I can't keep this shit to myself, you know? And so just my process of digesting the situation was to go back and say, okay, well, uh, how did this, like, how did we get here? And so the whole premise of the song was, how did we get here? And I got to a certain point, it was like four in the morning, and I had to stop. And normally, especially if I'm going to be leaving town, I would fucking record right there, and, right then and there. But I didn't have a beat for it. And so I just left the text document on my desktop and I saved it and I left it open as I sometimes do with new material. Um, but I didn't, I didn't demo it. And then on the, the, the drives on that tour, especially the first couple of days, you know, it was all those, uh, eclipse, the eclipse traffic was happening that weekend that we left in the first few days we had to drive by night like we'd play a show and then at two in the morning we'd pack up and then we'd drive to the next city because the daytime traffic was so terrible in the northwest and so on those drives man we had some some really good talks and you know when the three of us are talking um it opens me up to different perspectives and other angles that i hadn't thought about you know and um I really, I really took that to heart and I took, I actually took a couple notes on something that Kellen said that may, I wanted to include when I finished it. And at the end of that tour, uh, we stayed with my friend Skeptic, who's also my booking agent. Um, and, uh, he put us up at his place after we played at, uh, Gilman Street. And I had sent him some of the lyrics that I was working on and we talked about it and, um, and through that conversation, I got another idea on like how to finish the song. And so when all of a sudden done, um, from that blank check tour, I had all this bullshit happen, uh, with my car breaking down, I had to drive back and forth from California. And the first day that I woke up in my own bed and was just back home, I sat down and I finished and I added another like 50 bars and then I rewrote the whole thing. Like, you know, when I do my rewrites, I'll um, cut out certain ands and eyes and wees and little words that you don't need and I'll add, I'll replace words to make the rhyme scheme better um, if they say the same thing, you know, and, and just things like that to kind of tighten it up and make it more effective. So I did my rewrites that day and I wound up with this gargantuan, like, six-minute piece. And it was 128 bars. And it was, uh, it was pretty daunting. I decided to film myself recording the demo and, and post it online. And I called it Wildfire, which um, it was actually the Northwest was kind of overtaken by wildfires at the time because it was, it was the dead of... August, um, when, uh, when that shit first happened. And so that imagery, the thick smoke was still, still fresh in my mind. And, um, I, I ended up using that just as a metaphor in the song of like people being so unable to, 
recognize themselves in one side or the other that they just kind of like throw their hands in the air and give up. But um, I was really, really proud of that song. And, you know, the video did okay, but it didn't really go very far. And it was disappointing because I thought it might have been the greatest writing accomplishment of my life. I don't know. I mean, it was something I felt really strongly about and I've never been able to go that in depth on anything ever. I mean, I go back all the way to, uh, the civil war and touch on a lot of things along the way, you know, and in different angles of, of those things and how we came to arrive at this moment right now in our history. And I'm not a historian or anything, but, um, it's a story that made sense to me. And all we were trying to do at that moment was make some sense of what was happening. And, you know, some people told me that it really meant something to them. And, that, and, and I, I was excited by that. And I spent a lot of time trying to memorize that. So when we went on the Fall Children Tour, I committed that whole piece to memory and that was my closer on the tour. So every night I would play that whole six-minute cut. And then in uh, Iowa City, we were, um, Gradient and I were having a burger next door to the venue we were playing. And he said, oh, Eminem was on the BET, uh, the BET Cypher tonight. And, um, and he's... Uh, he did some shit about Trump and, you know, both of us are pretty big Eminem fans. We remembered like he went at Bush in 04 with that song Mosh. And, you know, that was kind of like in the downturn of his career. And so I was really interested to hear what M would say now that he's been lyrically really, really sharp again for, for a number of years. And, uh, I watched it and it was it was cool. He wasn't like really trying to impress. He was just he was just really fucking pissed off and he was using that platform to make a statement and to show solidarity with a whole lot of people who felt unsure about the future, man, and scared that uh the people don't have their their back you know, and as a white artist in a black art form, I thought it was cool that he did that, having that, um, platform, and, um, and then I had a really bad night, and we broke down again, and there was just a whole bunch of shit, and, uh, I found all, all of my friends were, either sharing his video or talking about his video, but specifically about his statement um, about Trump and the white supremacists and whatever. Um, not so much about like, uh, you know, the merits of his, his verse or anything about Eminem specifically, but more about, you know, there was just a lot of hype that he came out and made this thing. And I was like, where the fuck were all of you guys when I just did this, like it was like two weeks ago and um, I had already been planning to um, like, if you're, if you're an artist, you know this, if you're not, 
Um, Facebook limits what outside links are seen. They encourage you to use their site to upload your videos, for example. So if I post a YouTube link on my Sammy Warm Hands artist page, um, and, and it's from my YouTube channel, they will show it to far less people than if I upload a duplicate of that video to my Facebook page. So a lot of artists, and I've done this too, will release it on YouTube and then either put up like a clip of it on Facebook so it does the little autoplay thing that people see and then after 30 seconds or 10 seconds or whatever, you know, it'll say watch the full video at and you click the YouTube link. It's fucking stupid, but you have to do this now to get people to see it. And I was like, well, it's been out for a minute. Why, why don't I just upload the whole thing um, to Facebook, you know, while I'm on tour? I was thinking of that ahead of time. Then the Eminem thing happened, and we were uh, stranded um, with a day off uh, while the van was getting fixed, and... I talked to uh, Lisa and, and Grady, and I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to, instead of uploading the old one, I'm going to film an acapella one uh, of Wildfire. Like, I've been doing this every night, and, like, it's fucking, it's going over really well, and I'm super proud of it. And, you know, if people are into that kind of shit right now, they're looking for that kind of message. Like, I got that kind of message. And so I was like, I'm just going to do it, like, in bed when I wake up. I'm just going to fucking do it on my phone. You know, maybe I'll even live stream it or something, you know. Just like do it sitting there in the in the hotel bed. Um, like, fuck it, you know. If we're not trying to put on a show and we're just talking lyrics, you know, I'll just give you lyrics. And like, <laughs> the guys were like, nah, don't do that. You know, you got you to gotta do it more like fucking, you know, Put your hair up, go outside or go something. And um, So I was looking out the window and I was like, yeah, you know what? Let's let's just go out there into the field and do it. And Gradient filmed me doing acapella of Wildfire. And I slowed it down a little bit because it's, it's a quick BPM. And for that many bars, you know, it's it's ear fatigue to try to understand the whole thing. I understand that. And so... Um, it was much easier to comprehend what I was saying and to digest those lines, you know, as they're hitting your ear. So I slowed it down and, you know, emphasized certain things. And, um, actually after that, I started doing, um, like the last half of it acapella at shows just to kind of further emphasize the lyrics and hope people understood what I was saying, but that video we uploaded that day at like noon and, um, over the next, uh, like a couple hours, it already had a few thousand views. And then by the next day it had 10,000 views. And by the next day it had 30,000 views. I'm like, holy shit, what the fuck is happening? Like I've never had a fucking, you know, viral video or anything before. Um, you know, I, and some people say, you know, like, oh, dude, a viral video is like fucking, you know, 5 million or something. But for me, I mean, uh, 
the original wildfire video got 400 views. Okay, 400. And this one ended up with 40-some thousand in like four days. So that's viral to me. (laughs) That's underground viral. All right, so uh, I just... That's what I've been up to, man. I fucking... I wrote that shit, I memorized that shit, and the stars aligned timing-wise and allowed me to, while I was out there promoting that single, to drop it again and get a huge push um, because of all the people reacting to Eminem. So shout out to uh, Eminem, You're always an influence of mine, and I appreciate the assist on that shit. Not that he'll ever hear it, but uh, give credit where credit is due. It wasn't all my doing, it was timing. So I was really proud of that. Thank you guys for sharing that. I made like 200 new fans on my page that week. That was pretty cool. I mean, fuck that. It takes a a few tours for me to get 200 new fans on my page. So unfortunately, I kind of slowed down my social media presence after that, though. I've had other things going on. Um, I'm going to take a sip of water from my wife's Chewbacca mug here. All right, so... Uh, To recap, thank you for checking out the Wildfire video. Um, That whole tour was really, really trying. It was really difficult, the Fall Children Tour. So I appreciate anybody who came to those shows or helped promote those shows uh, or hosted us or gave us a place to stay, man. Like, uh, you are lifesavers. That was a really, really difficult one. The Blank Check Tour with DFS, that actually went really, really great. And um, uh, it's it's been such a welcome surprise to have a band that nobody really cared about 10 years ago be making such a big comeback now. Um, when we released the Squalor album in January, I thought, you know, like the goal had been to make the best punk album of my life which uh, I, I feel like I did, and, and you know other people corroborated that. And, and Kellen, my drummer, uh, my partner in, in DFS, you know, we were both really happy about it and proud of it. And I was like, well, fuck, this took so many years in the making, like there's, there's nowhere to go from this. <laughs> you know, like when I opened the CD for the first time and I popped it in, I was like, dude, this, this is super cool. Like there's no... There's no stopping this. Where do I, where do I go from here, man? This is this is probably it, you know. And we we really didn't think anybody would care about the, the band anyway. We were like, well, either no one's gonna care, and we're gonna have the best album of our lives, or, this will, restart the band, or more likely, we'll we'll, we'll just, wind up with the cool record that we made and be able to have that for ourselves. You know, that'll be sweet. But people. Fucking liked it, man. And and that first tour was so inspiring that the moment I got home, I started writing. And actually, we did a little bit of writing while I was on the road. And all year, me and Kellen have been making new demos. Um, right now, we've got, I think, 13 new songs. 11 of them have, have lyrics and everything on them. Two of them still need some vocals. But um, yeah, man, it's getting there. And... Originally, my my plan, because it was coming along really quickly, you know, like uh, this summer, um, I was like, man, we've already already got like a dozen songs. Like this is this is going really fast. It'd be cool if we, you know, put out the next record, you know, in the, 
springtime and, and get on the road again right then and really just cement the comeback. And, you know, we were talking the other day and I was like, we got a lot of songs and um, we got nothing but like self-imposed deadlines. So like, let's just play a couple shows we got invited to in January and February and and just work on the songs, man. Like there's no reason to rush it. And if we're going to follow up an album like that, that was a milestone to us, uh, it's important to to each of us that that it's done right. And I think the sounds of the demos are already better sounding than, than the album we made, which is crazy because that was like a big, I felt a big accomplishment for me production-wise. Um, when I was making the Daydream album, Eric Munch hooked me up with a bunch of new... Um, plugins and I started trying some different things and you can tell from the last couple demos that we recorded compared to the ones we recorded in the beginning of the year like they already sound so much better sonically so I'm really looking forward to seeing where that that next record ends up um it's got a working title of peril not apparel but peril is what I what I like to call it we'll see what happens but um Crosby is is staying in the band and um, we're going to do a couple couple shows early next year, so you can look for that. I also wanted to mention that for anyone who's followed my work for a long time, you'll know that for many, many years I was in a group called The Illusionists, and we are coming up on our 10-year anniversary. We haven't hardly done anything since uh, about 2014, I think, was when we stopped playing regular shows. But, um, yeah, man, we, that Death of a Salesman album, especially, people still say is is like their favorite thing I've ever made in any capacity. And, um, you know, as much as I'm, I'm like, oh, but that new shit's pretty, you know, like fucking rare form, though, you know, or like whatever I just put out. I'm like, come on, that's, that's you know, you always want your new shit to be your best shit, but... I understand why that album resonated with people and I also understand why like I'm not able to see it clearly sometimes because it was like you know the band basically broke broke up over that record and that period of time that we're writing about on the album is also like you know one of the worst most difficult stressful times of my life and so you know it's got all these other meanings all this other baggage to me that it doesn't have to listeners and I I totally get it. You know, it's a fuck your job concept album. Like who, who isn't going to connect with that? But that's kind of where we left off, man. And I had some people say like when I went off and did break the bank a couple months later, and then I did bears repeating and started touring solo that people were like, what the fuck are you doing? You just spent like years of your life building up the illusionists and you had this, this popular record and then just switched gears and left that behind. And we're like, well, I mean, it's more complicated than that. There was a lot of relationships and, and things that um, I felt like weren't able to keep the thing moving, you know. But in hindsight, yeah, maybe we should have done a second pressing at Death of Salesman, done another tour. Um, who knows? All that I do know is that randomly, whenever we can, in those in those years, in the meantime... We have written some new songs, and coming up on our 10-year anniversary, uh, 2018, um, we're going to do something to commemorate that. I'll leave it at that. You can connect the dots on your own, but something is coming from The Illusionist, and uh, pretty excited about that. 
me and Ev got together the other day to uh, talk about that and kind of put together a plan as to how we're going to do it. So if, uh, if there's any ill fans out there, I know a few of you listen to this show. Um, that's probably uh, some, some good news for you, perhaps a welcome surprise, because we haven't really talked about that yet. Another thing that I wanted to uh, talk about, I've been really quiet on social media, as I mentioned, lately. Since I got home from the fall children's tour, I probably haven't posted anything music-related much at all. It's just been um, back to living life, man. I had to come back to my job. Um, we lost a person there, and then it's the Christmas rush at the same time, so I've been working full-time, and I haven't had a full-time job. I've been at this place five years now. I've never had to work there full-time, so this is like um, I'm, I'm back to the, the workforce more than I would like to be right now. I usually work three days a week just to keep the lights on while I make records, but right now, Man, I'm doing the I'm doing five days at retail, and uh, I haven't had the creative juices, let's say, for lack of a better word, when I come out in the studio and sit down and listen to tracks that I need to finish. It's not there right now, and that's all right, because sometimes in the past I'll write a mixtape, you know, like I wrote free rights in 2014 because I. Like I, I needed to do a feature on the Gradient album and I needed to do a couple of other things. And I wasn't quite there. Uh, I think I was finishing the Famous Last Words album is what I was doing. Um, I wasn't quite there. Like tour had taken me out of my routine in my, uh, my comfort zone and I lost all that momentum, what I was working on, you know. Because um, there's something about... Uh, a creative momentum, whether it's one session, you know, it's why I'll stay up until it's fucking 7 a.m. and you go inside to go to the bathroom. You're like, oh, shit, the sun is up. I got to stop. You know, like there's something about once you get that magic energy that's just right um, to embrace it fully and commit to it and not let it pass. So um, when I'm uprooted from my life and I go out on the road, it, it ruins it. It just straight up does. And I like touring and I, I love playing shows and, and meeting people. And, and I do that because I want people to hear the music that I've made. You know, that's what I do. I spend the time in here so I can put it on CD and bring that out to the world. So uh, I'm not knocking the, uh, the, the touring life. That's my shit. But when I got back, I couldn't couldn't write any verses. I didn't write a mixtape. Um, I just wasn't feeling very musically inspired. And so I realized, you know, this is um, the first time in a long time I don't have any tours set up. I don't even have like a tentative like, oh, and in February we'll be going to this thing and I'll, you know, whatever. I don't have shit on the menu. And so I was thinking, you know, I've been planning to do another book. I've been planning to do a second book. I knew I wanted to write about the road. The first book was kind of uh, 
all-encompassing to an extent, but it was it was largely about the albums that I've made and, and the experiences surrounding them. But I wanted to do something that um, was about all of my experiences on the road. It's one of those projects that takes so much fucking time. When are you ever going to get around to such a thing? And the first book, Famous Last Words, was written around this time of year, actually, where I wasn't doing much musically. Um, I had kind of finished my lyrics for Famous Last Words, I think, and on my days off, I don't want to do nothing. Well, I mean, I want to do nothing, but I want to feel like I got something done. Not really feeling like rhyming, not really feeling like playing guitar. You know, uh, let's let's sit down and... and uh, and write down some some memories, reflect on some times. So the week that I got back from the Fall Children Tour, I decided uh, I was going to use this time, you know, from then, which was uh, October, late October, you know, as I said, from now to the end of the year, whatever, I'm just going to focus on the book. So that's what I've been doing. I've been putting in a lot of hours at work, and I have a job that... Uh, when there's downtime in between customers, we're allowed to just kind of do what we want. And so I I brought my laptop to work instead of trying to write the thing at home, you know, every night when I'm off, you know, I would I would sit down on that first book for like, you know, four, five, six hours at a time, just sitting straight writing. And, um, and I wrote the whole thing in like six weeks. And it was fucking crazy. It was like uh, thir- 35 chapters, I think. It's like 64,000 words. And um, and I wrote the whole thing really quickly. Um, the editing took a while. took like three months. But with this, I've actually been writing the whole thing at work in between customers. I've only done maybe one or two where I like kept working on it at home that night. And currently, because there's, there's 15 tours that I've done, I just started the last chapter today. And it's been six weeks. I wrote an introduction chapter as well. So, so like I've done 16 chapters. There's a total of 16 chapters. I've done 15 of them so far. Um, I broke 80,000 words today. All in between customers at work. That's pretty fucking crazy, man. It's even bigger than the last one. But my plan right now is to just focus on as many details as I can remember. And I texted all my old tour mates and, and, and I said, hey, if there's any story or any memory, even if it's just a couple words, you know, like, oh, the time at the reptile shop, you know, if you just said that to me, I would go, oh, I remember that. And I could add it to the story and write about it, you know, and I'm going through all these old spreadsheets from uh, uh, when we booked the tours, because I still have all those in my Google spreadsheets or Google Docs or whatever the fuck it's called. So I was able to go through day by day, city by city where I was, you know, and compare that with photos and videos or on social media and all that and really try to piece together a clear memory, a clear story of everything that happened on all of these different tours. You know, the the first tour was fucking crazy and, you know, it was 40 days and it was my first time out and I had just bought the van and, and we didn't know what to expect and there was all this crazy shit and that chapter I knew was going to be great. And then after that, I was like, well, I hope this is still going to be interesting. I don't know. 
And honestly, the longer it went on, the more fucked up shit happened and the more like crazy things that I forgot about. So I'm really uh, pleased that uh, there's plenty of good stories in there. I think the editing process really is going to be um, taking this really complete document and cutting it down to perhaps the most uh, interesting details. I don't know how long the edit's going to take, but um, I should have this the first draft done, man, uh, hopefully this week. I think um, I think it's definitely doable. So that's where I've been at, man. I'm trying to, trying to keep things quiet. You know, I haven't really done any interviews. Um, I've been talking to people. People have been bugging me to get them in here. We want to do some interviews, that's for sure. Um, but uh, my weekends are my weekends right now. Like, I need that fucking time just to chill out and watch Star Wars movies and get ready for the fucking Last Jedi. Like, can I hope everyone out there is as ridiculously excited for the Last Jedi as I am. Like, do you do you understand? You know, I got my tickets. Me and my wife got got our tickets like a month ago. We're gonna go the, the opening night, the Thursday, you know, premiere. It's gonna be like twelve thirty or some shit. It's gonna be fucking amazing. We could see Luke Skywalker back in action. I don't know if he's going to be evil or what, but we get to see Kylo Ren fuck shit up. We get to hopefully find out who Ray's parents are. Man, oh my God. This is, uh, this is an exciting time, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Like more so than Christmas, you look forward to Star Wars, I hope, because that's, that's what we do in our household here. And we're fans of Christmas. I mean, I don't like the Christmas season because it, it sucks at work, and I've worked retail since I was in high school, but like, you like you like actual Christmas Day, you know. That's that's nice. It's family time. Uh, as much as I like uh, getting cool stuff, I like I like uh, you know listening uh, to conversations throughout the year and like uh, catching on to little things. Or when we're out at the stores together, you know, oh that's a cool thing, you know. And then you don't think anything about it again. Well, I think about it again, and I remember that shit. So I like to see the the surprise of oh I forgot about this, or I can't believe you remembered. And you know I like to do that shit. But more important than that is Star Wars Last Fucking Jedi. I can't fucking wait. I can't say enough how excited I am. I just watched the whole, um, if you get a chance, and I'm going to share this too, but watch the uh, the Jimmy Kimmel video. He has the whole uh, cast and the director on his show. And uh, it's super cool. There's a great story with Mark Hamill about they have to be very secretive. They can't say anything about what happens in the movie. And um, uh, Jimmy asked Mark Hamill about the whole I am your father shit. That was like the biggest mind-blown moment in you know, like modern cinematic history, you know. And it was the biggest twist ever. And um, he has a great a great story about that on, the, on Jimmy Kimmel. So I'd watch that. Now, I wanted to touch on this too. And... Um, if you know me on any level, you probably know, even if you've just watched a random video of me, you probably will have seen some Batman shit in the studio or on my person. Um, I actually, I just took off my Batman robe and, and uh, set down my Batman goblet full of ice cream so I could uh, record this little podcast here. Um, if you heard the free rights record, there's a song called Go to the Movies. I'm going to take a sip from Chewie's head. Okay. There's a song in there called Go to the Movies. And it's about this fucking time we live in where everyone is so spoiled. 
and self-entitled and judgmental. And it reminds me in a way of like, let's say, okay, so I live in Eugene, Oregon. It's a small-ish college town. And my whole life to see any cool show, you got to drive 100 miles to Portland to see the cool show, right? I actually get to see Foo Fighters here in Eugene on Tuesday, the day this comes out. Um, when I previously had to drive two fucking hours to go see them, you know, 10 years ago, whenever I saw them, um, because that's what you do when you're in a town like this, you don't get the cool shows, you know, they're always, uh, they go from San Francisco to Portland to Seattle. Sometimes they don't even go to Portland. They just go straight to Seattle. So my whole life, I, when I was a kid, I get my parents to drive me to these shows, you know, or as an adult, when I first got my car, Okay throw all the friends in the car and, and let's go, you know, and we make that trip. But your friends who live in the big cities, oh, are you going to the thing? Nah, I don't know. I don't know. You know why? Because there's so many great fucking shows in their town that they can't see them all. It's too much. There's so much shit. My analogy is to say that right now we live in a time where, and, and I'm, I'm speaking about the Justice League. Um, but at the time that uh, uh, song on free rights go to the movies, I was speaking about Spider-Man. Like there are so many comic book movies in particular that everyone thinks that they can do a better job than the director, the writer, the actor, the casting agent, like whoever, they fucking have all the right answers on the internet, you know. And all your friends, the people you actually know too on the internet, all want to talk shit. And like when somebody comes out with something that everybody likes, it's crickets, you know. You don't hear that much other than like, oh yeah, Stranger Things is coming out. Who's, who's going to watch that? Like, oh, I will. And then like, you know, nothing. You know, a week later, no one's talking about it. But, like, if they got a problem with it, it's this rant, and then there's this thread of 250 comments of people weighing in on how, oh, this is such a piece of shit, and it's a CGI disaster and all this. And, like, I just, I'm so grateful to live in a time where we get to see all these stories on the big screen. Like, me and my brother just went to... Justice League last night and it was my third time seeing it because I got this subscription pass uh, this movie pass where you can uh, pay a monthly fee and go to the movies every day if you want and it's, it's it's rad for somebody like me who likes to go a lot but like just watching just seeing those characters stand in a fucking line together just gets me so excited man like these these characters are things that we've loved our entire lives, like since we were kids. And like the world is so fucked up right now that like there is nothing better than that kind of of escape. It's something that inspires you and makes you feel good and like you feel like, you know, somebody's got your back and you're seeing people do the right thing for once and it's always been great, man. Like the first live action movie that I remember even seeing at all was Batman, 89, Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson. Like that shit changed my life. I genuinely believe that, you know, like I had a Batman birthday cake when I was two years old. And like ever since I've just been into the character. But but when that movie came out, it like 
it was such a like I'd never seen anything like it. And obviously it changed the game, you know. It had been a long time since Christopher Reeve and like and the, you know, the Burton franchise really kicked everything off, you know. It made the way for X-Men and then Spider-Man and then uh the Chris Nolan uh, Dark Knight trilogy and then uh the Marvel universe like none of those things were in place, you know, uh, until Warner Brothers cleaned up on Batman 89 by showing us some crazy fucking shit. And you know what? At the time, some people did shit on it for not being like faithful to the comics. Um, and maybe if the internet was around, you know, we'd get the same kind of bullshit. But like now people look at that movie as a fucking classic, you know, and all the hate mail they got for casting Michael Keaton, same way they got all the hate mail for casting Ben Affleck is a fucking distant memory and all the people that are like 30 and 40 years old like oh yeah fucking you know my batman is michael keaton you know like totally and uh i just think it's so silly to be shitting on this stuff like the other day and me and sarks are good friends but we like butt heads like nothing else like no other, and I don't know what the fuck it is. It's movies and music and whatever. When we love the same things, we also disagree on the same things all the time. And the second time I saw Justice League, I was like, man, I just walked out of this thing so happy and so inspired. And like minor spoiler, minor Minor spoiler, if you followed anything about the Justice League, you know that Superman comes back. Even if you've watched uh, Batman versus Superman, which a lot more people saw that movie, you know the final frame, the dust is rising from the grave there. So, like, you know, Superman comes back, right? But I was so fucking happy in that moment. And in his his scenes in the end of the movie, it was like that. I went home and I watched Superman, Superman 2, Superman Returns. And I had already watched Man of Steel the previous week, or I probably would have watched that again too. And like, I would just, it made me feel so good to see him not only back, but like using his fucking powers in all the best ways. And his like total character arc was realized. Like, okay, okay. I know I'm just kind of rambling and ranting here, but let's, let's talk about this villainization of, is that a word? I don't know. Of Zack Snyder and the the like current DC universe. Because these movies are making money. And they're comparing them. They're going like, oh, well, just uh, Justice League only did half what the Avengers did. Like, yeah, because the Avengers was the first superhero team up that we've ever seen. Ever. Anywhere. And you can't compare it to that. And like, well, it didn't do what even Wonder Woman did. Like, yeah, well, it's the first superhero-led or, or female-led superhero movie. Like, it's a totally different thing. Well, it didn't even do what Batman vs. Superman did. Okay, fair enough point. But on what planet is $95 million uh, a bomb at the box office? Uh, you know, in what world is that uh, a failure? Like Kevin Smith said, man, if you added up all the opening weekends of every movie I've ever made, it would not add up to $95 million. He's like, I would kill to have $95 million opening weekend. 
So I get in the context, sure. But why the fuck are we even talking about this? We don't work for the studios. We're not investors. I don't have a stock in fucking Warner Brothers, or in Time Warner. You know, do you have stock in Time Warner, everybody? Is that why you're so interested in what the box office numbers are? Honestly, people were shitting on that. Uh, so much that by Saturday morning, they were already saying the box office for the weekend was fucked up. It opened Thursday night, played Friday, and by Saturday morning, they were saying the four-day weekend was a failure. Two of those days hadn't happened yet. Why the fuck are we so obsessed with this shit that we have to report on the information before it's even occurred? Like, that shit is crazy, and I was so upset by it that I went and saw it again Sunday night. That was my second viewing, just to make sure that I saw it that same first weekend, just because I was I was tired of people shitting on it. So, let's reel it in again, the Zack Snyder universe, what's happening right now. And I appreciate if you've listened to this and you don't care, because uh, I know this is a music podcast, and clearly I'm just speaking on a, a, another passion of mine another interest of mine here on the side but like okay man of steel it's kind of the year one of superman you know in that way like frank miller did his year one and batman begins kind of emulated that and they're showing this dude who is figuring out what to do with all this anger and all this shit and he's coming into his own and he's not there yet. It's a little more fully realized in that movie. You know, he gets the ideals and he's tested and whatever and overcomes. Now in this, in Man of Steel, you're looking at a dude who's struggled with his abilities. He was guilted by his dad into keeping everything a secret and to the extent that he, he sacrificed his own life so that his son wouldn't be revealed for having his abilities and therefore being, you know, a social pariah of some kind. He didn't want that to happen. And so he died knowing his son could save him because he thought he was protecting him. And he didn't think the world was ready. So like back up, if you look at the first Superman movie, Christopher Reeve, and therefore, any big screen incarnation, because they've all been in connection to that series, he was already out there doing shit, okay? By the first time you see him, he's saving people. Lex Luthor doesn't, like, coax him into existence. He sees that this guy exists and goes, oh, well, we better take him down. Like, it's different, okay? So in this version of it, you get this young man who's trying to figure all this shit out, who deals with a whole bunch of guilt from his dad's death and all this shit, that he doesn't feel his place as Superman, right? So then Zod comes and makes him come out to fight. Like, that's his entrance to the world. He's not the Boy Scout, everyone loves, do the right thing, American way guy. He's not that guy yet because he hasn't been given a chance to be that. And at the end of that big fight with Zod, they fuck up a bunch of Metropolis and he ends up breaking his neck. Zod dies and everyone 
was like, oh, Superman would never kill. That's so out of character. And I was like, yeah, that's why he let out that like blood curdling scream, kind of like the end of Superman right before he turns back time. Um, you know, he, he was so torn up, not by losing Lois, but by losing the main villain. What is that? No, he lets out that screen because he didn't want to bring himself to that level, but he did so to save the people that Zod was trying to kill with his eyes there, blasting the people across the room. He didn't know what else to do. It's the only way he could stop him, right? So that happens. Metropolis is fucked up. The fans are going, this is bullshit. You didn't even get the character right. And Batman versus Superman comes out. And already they have given you a movie that follows up the events directly. And you have Batman introduced, uh, actually as Bruce Wayne, running into this shit and saving or, or trying to save his uh, employees from this place. Okay? So you're looking at that and you see his anger is real. But guess what? His anger at the whole Metropolis, Zod, Superman thing is your anger, the fans. Your outrage at the first movie is the Batman character in this story. And now everyone walked away from that movie going, well, Batman would never act like that. He was so fucking angry and, and, and dark and he went against his, his code and whatever. And like, okay, so first of all, you're looking at a Batman who's being introduced way down the line. So you, you get the Superman that's introduced earlier than we're used to seeing, who hasn't evolved into the place that we expect. And then in the next movie, you're getting the Batman that uh, is introduced way down the line at the end of his career. Okay, and we haven't seen him in his prime the way we've come to expect. And so you're getting this person who's already grizzled and jaded and worn out um, seeing these events and carrying the torch for you guys, the fans, going, this isn't right. This can't happen. And so his crusade against Superman is to make sure that that never happens again, right? Now, just shortly after that, Captain America Civil War came out. I wore my Captain America pajama pants just for uh, example here. I'm just a fan of both. But um, that movie came out and was universally praised. All right. So I wrote this list on May 11th, 2016. I've never shared this with anybody before. I wrote this on my phone. Okay. These two movies are the same movie. All right. Here's my theory. You have a tech-savvy human hero with the father's inherited wealth and general renegade mentality, okay? This is your against-the-grain vigilante type who's not even a, a superhero, right? Then you have this altruistic superhero who often works with the establishment and embraces the American iconography, ideology, okay? These two heroes are at odds. You have Captain America and Iron Man. You have Superman and Batman. All right? Now, the human hero mourns bystanders from the prior film, seeks to eliminate that threat. All right? So, in uh, Civil War, you see Tony Stark, much like Bruce Wayne, is seeing the casualties of violence 
from Zirkovia or wherever the fuck they were in Age of Ultron and um, all these places. And he's going, okay, something's got to change, all right? And they have their whole powwow there where Stark's introducing sanctions, these rules where they have to act in accordance with the government or, you know, be fucked up. They're basically like employees now. They can't make their own uh, decisions, right? And that's similar to what happens um, with like Holly Hunter in the courtroom, um, the Granny's Peach Tea thing, where they bring Superman to trial because everyone thinks that he's acted um, irresponsibly in intervening um, with that shit in the Middle East when he saved Lois. So um, the altruistic superhero demands autonomy, continues to intervene in international matters, okay? Um, that's my next note, which I already just explained. An outside force manipulates heroes toward said confrontation, okay? Now, you get the guy who was um, in Inglorious Bastards. I forget his name. He does the uh, the Winter Soldier. He reprograms him, right? And um, sets off this, this whole thing to pit them uh, against each other. And you have Lex Luthor in Batman vs. Superman, who is uh, planting little uh, seeds in, you know, Bruce Wayne's uh, mailbox and doing these things to divide those two characters. Even that great scene that they use in the trailer where they're in plain clothes at the, the Lex Luthor uh, party benefit thing, whatever that was, for something about a library. And he's like, wow, Bruce Wayne meets Clark Kent, you know, like... What are the odds? You know, like the whole time he's playing those fuckers together, trying to get them in the same room and trying to get uh, and, and push their buttons. Okay. Now you bring this then to terrorist bombing occurs at public hearing about the hero's uh, prior destruction. Okay. The king of uh, Wakanda, whatever, uh, the Black Panther's dad gets blown up. At this other one, there's the bombing where the... Uh, the guy in Lex Luthor's wheelchair blows up the courtroom when Superman arrives. Uh, side note, there are a couple of regrettable lines in um, Man of Steel had a couple, but in particular that scene in, in Batman vs. Superman where Lex Luthor um, goes to this guy's house, the man who was injured in the uh, Metropolis incident, and he rolls in in a wheelchair, and Lex is sitting in another wheelchair that's electric. He spins around, the guy goes, what the hell do you want? And Lex motions to the electric wheelchair and says, to help you stand for something. I'm like, really? Stand for something? That's fucked up. Anyway, I thought that was a poor choice of words. Um, anyway, same exact um, thing happening. And then the more uh, rogue hero, vigilante type, his parents' death... Uh, is shown and becomes a crucial point in the film's climax, okay? When when Cap and Bucky and Stark are all fighting at the end, you could put that clip side by side. Oh, actually, I think Honest Trailers did that, the Screen Junkies guys. In, um, I can't remember which Honest Trailers they did. But um, Cap is trying to protect Bucky, and Stark gives this very emotional... Uh, performance and, and says he killed my mom and like he's about to crumble and he can hardly say it but he's got to say it um, because that's how they ended up in this point and cap 
admits that he knew about it. And that's when they really come to blows, right? Now, you can compare that with the infamous Martha scene in uh, Batman vs. Superman. I'm not going to defend Henry's performance of that line because I think that the execution could have been better. And honestly, I think that entire gripe could have been spared if instead of saying, they're going to kill Martha, if he had just said, they're going to kill my mom. Or even if he said it once, and then the second time, he didn't repeat himself, um, but he said, they're going to kill my mom. You know, one or the other, if he said it one time, and then Batman would realize, like, wait, they're going to kill his mom. Like, that's fucked up. Like, you, you don't even have to necessarily make the connection of the name. Like, uh, I remember when I saw Batman vs. Superman the very first time in the, in the theater at the premiere, they have that just breathtaking uh, retelling of the the night that um, Thomas and Martha Wayne were killed. And um, you see the little cameo from the comedian in uh, Watchmen as, as Thomas Wayne. And he's laying there and he looks across at his wife's eyes and he said, Martha. And I thought at the time I was like, man, that's that's really cool because they always talk about Thomas Wayne and they really don't talk about uh, Martha Wayne very much. Like that's that's neat that they at least like acknowledged her um, in that scene and didn't make it all the uh, father son shit. Not to mention the cameo by the comedian. Like that was cool. Not to mention like that was also the first time you ever saw Bill Finger's name as a co-creator of Batman on screen. Like that, just that scene was awesome for many, many ways. Um, and, and just the way that it was shot was fucking stunning. Um, they had the Martha thing. They have the nightmare where Bruce Wayne is is at the little um, uh, memorial um, deep in the Wayne Manor property where I don't know if that's where they're buried or what it looks like a gravestone and there's thomas wayne on the right and martha wayne on the left and his fingers kind of tracing the stone on uh, martha's side and then it, it like bleeds and then bats burst through and he like wakes up you know so they like giving you subtle little marthas all along the way you know and i think that when he said that at the end of the movie or in the climax of the film where he says Martha. I think either way he could have said, you know, they're going to kill my mom. And what it's doing is it's snapping Batman out of this reactionary mode that he's been in where he saw some real catastrophic shit and some real consequence to the damage in Metropolis. You know, he saw that with his own two eyes. He was fucking there, you know. And I think that scared him and he felt responsible to protect people as he does. That is in his character. And so he goes a little off the rails in that and you see a really rage-filled Batman, but he's acting out of fear, which is uncommon for him. So when that happens and those words are uttered, all it's doing is communicating that like, oh my God, like what have I become? If, if I'm going to stand by and let this dude's parents get killed and I'm caught up in the fucking, in trying to stomp him, you know, like he's seeing the humanity in him right there. And they mention in Justice League, there's a great scene where Alfred and Bruce are talking and he said, he's more human than I ever was. You know, he, he lived 
in this world. He had, he had love and a family and whatever, you know, like Bruce has been a loner. He's put on a facade in, you know, a lot of his relationships and his only true relationship in, in general is, is with Alfred. And the, the person he truly is, is that guy who goes out there and beats the shit out of people by night. So, um, you know, he's acknowledging the humanity that he saw in Superman, in Clark. Um, and that moment was the first time he got a glimpse of it, okay? There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. It's just the execution of that, like, that really bad groaning uh, thing that Henry did. To, like, they're gonna kill Martha. Like, it's just, it, you know... It's a little, it's a little hard to watch in repetition. But I mean, the first time I saw it, I was like, hey, "I see what you did there." And then he said it again. I was like, "Okay, a little laying it on a little thick. We get it." And then Lois comes in, like, "That's his mother's name." It's like, "Okay, okay, yeah, we, we get that." But if again, if you, if just a slight, slight rewording, and like, no one would have complained. It would have been fucking awesome. Masterstroke. Good writing. I really like it. It snaps Batman back in to himself. He gets out of that rage mode and goes, oh shit, you're right. We've got more important shit to deal with here. And then he goes and he saves her fucking mom and or, or he saves his fucking mom. And guess what? That's the best part of the movie. <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of people have said that's the best Batman action sequence ever is in the warehouse scene when he goes to rec rescue uh, Martha Kent. So like that shit is unbelievable. And then of course, Superman dies and, he gets to be the hero of his own movie. You see the fight, and you see him get his ass kicked and whatever. Oh, by the way, in the fight scene, tell me. You cannot say that that movie, like, people shit on that movie all the time. They tell me it's a piece of shit. They say they couldn't get through it. They say this and that. All these terrible, disparaging things. Okay. Uh, Sarks even said um, that he preferred Joel Schumacher over Zack Snyder. Okay. When you went to the theater as a kid to see Batman Forever and then Batman and Robin, okay, you don't know fucking disappointment, all right? Like, you don't know until you live through that shit, okay? I went and saw those movies when I was a kid, hoping to say, see the next fucking Batman Returns, okay? And, and <laughs> it ruined that shit for me. Like, I wasn't even, like, into it much longer because that era of those films killed it for me okay i got out of it all right you see a guy like uh zach snyder with a beautiful visual style and a true love and appreciation for the comics like more than burton even had like at least as much if not more than nolan ever had like he really really loves this shit and wants to bring it to life in the best way like nolan brought that shit in the real world which is awesome but people who grew up watching that first and that was their first like basis for batman and for superhero movies is like oh if it doesn't you know look like the fucking gritty chicago streets or some shit then like you know, it's not real. This isn't, you know, I, I can't buy into this. Guess what? It's a fucking superhero movie. So anyway, um, that fight scene where this garbage movie supposedly pits these two heroes on screen for the first time ever in history. Okay. They've been around since 1938 and 1939 respectively. And the first time you're ever seeing them on screen is happening. 
right now, okay? 2016, last year, first time ever. And they fight. You see the balance of power, okay? You see Batman get thrown around like a rag doll. You see after the kryptonite gas hits him, uh, Superman um, starts to get his face punched in a little bit. Dude, that scene, Superman swings on Batman, and Batman blocks the shot. And the surprise in both in uh, Superman's eyes, and then he gets the shit peed out of him. And then right after that, when the the uh, kryptonite gas starts to wear off and the, and the effects have passed. Batman is punching Superman's face and you start to see his face instead of getting swung around by the punches. It starts to move less and less until it barely flinches and then Batman just punches a face that doesn't even budge and his powers back. Like, tell me that that isn't fucking beautiful movie making right there that shit is incredible okay you should be standing in your seats watching that shit going i can't fucking believe what's happening this is amazing all right and then they let superman be the hero in the end of the film he gets to be the one who who kills doomsday and sacrifices himself side note the fact that we get to see wonder woman like the fucking dc trinity right there in action, killing it, like Wonder Woman just fucking appears and gets her ass kicked by Doomsday and when she hits the ground, she like fucking smiles and like, alright, motherfucker, it's on, like, goes at him. Amazing, alright? But then Superman, he lays down his life for the cause and he saves the day. It was great because he had a bittersweet end to Man of Steel and he kind of became the villain for most of this movie and now... He gets to play the hero again, bittersweet, because um, he, he, he doesn't live to see another day. Beautifully shot burial scene in the, the Kent farm uh, with Lois. I thought that was awesome. And then they give you the little teaser, right? Okay, so in this movie, Justice League, when Superman comes back. And some people didn't like the way they brought him back. I mean, they bring him back with the... Uh, uh, the chamber in the uh, Kryptonian ship, the same way they brought back Zod to create Doomsday. And, uh, you know, it makes enough sense. Like, uh, given the end of Batman vs. Superman, we kind of expected him to just show up somewhere, you know, like, oh, he just lived through that. But Batman said something about his cells laying dormant, unable to decay. So, like, you know, he's still there even if there's no no functionality per se um the vessel is still there with all of that capacity so they bring him back in that chamber in the ship and uh, when he shoots to the sky i like shot both of my hands in the air like yes i fucking like i've been waiting for this he comes out and he doesn't know what the fuck's going on he sees all these people standing in front of him you know aquaman uh, wonder woman Flash and Cyborg all standing in front of him in a line. And he's like, what the fuck? And he's like, starts scanning them. And like, oh, these motherfuckers, like, hearts are racing. Like, shit, it's on. And then Cyborg's like, accidentally, you know, putting together his weapon to fire. He's like, I have no control over this. It's like a self-defense system. Fucking blast him. And, and it's on, man. And again, just like the Batman vs. Superman fight, amazing things happen. You see him grab... All th three, uh, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and Cyborg, and the Flash makes a run for it around him, and you see Superman's 
right eye just drift to his like peripheral vision and start to turn his head and it cuts back to flash and he's like holy fucking shit what just happened and then superman throws the other three and starts swinging on flash just as fast as he's going and dude like that is a jaw-dropping fucking exciting super fun fucking moment and then batman shows up uh, superman grabs wonder woman and he headbutts her and she headbutts back and so he does the little like fly up and then down real quick and headbutts her into the fucking cement um like oh my god and then he walks he goes right over to batman and fucking hucks him into a cop car and just like fucks him up throws him like a rag doll picks him up and just like that famous line that was in the trailer of batman versus superman when they first meet and batman's in the uh standing up in the batmobile and he goes tell me do you bleed you will you know he does that whole thing and uh, sorry i've been talking for a long time my voice is kind of gone i can't do batman voice but um fucking superman picks him up in justice league um after he's brought back from the dead and he sees him and he goes tell me do you bleed i was losing my shit it is one of the greatest things i've ever seen on screen anywhere i was so fucking happy and then he just tosses him like over his shoulder they don't even show batman land it was just like get the fuck out of here like it was fucking amazing okay and then lois comes in which uh, is great too because it ties into batman versus superman when the flash shows up in the bat cave through the little time portal whatever they call it you know you were right about him it's lois lane the key is lois lane you've got to find us you've got to bring us together like well guess what he brought them together and you know they kept superman at bay and then lois showed up and brought kal-el a little bit back to earth they embrace and he's like okay shit this isn't this isn't right. He has his own Martha moment. Okay. Like, okay, so, something isn't right. I know you, I know this is right. I'm let's leave and figure this out. And so then they go and when Superman finally comes back, he is the fully realized truth, justice in the American way, fucking, you know, classic comic book Superman that we've all wanted to see. Right. You know, and now he's gone through that character arc to arrive at that place where he held his secret identity and his powers from the world until he was coaxed out and then had to see life lost and then had to kill and then came back from that sacrifice his own life and fucking died and then came back and saw you know the hurt and the relief on on, on lois and on his mom you know and all these people and you know how the world had changed and and you see him be grateful to be alive and he even says something about that when a cyborg's like and then we have to pull apart we have to separate the boxes you know and superman's like is there any blowback because i don't really want to die again you know like you see his appreciation for life and the fact that he can he he's here to help they wanted him to come back and help and save the day and do something good with his powers you know like that's a full fucking arc from those three movies man and now he's finally the guy that we've wanted to see and i can't wait i hope i hope that they fucking give Zack snyder man of steel 2 and that chris terrio comes back on to write and that they they take this vision 
uh, all the way because now we have that guy that we've been waiting for. And people also looked at this movie and they said, like, oh, Batman shouldn't have been making jokes, man. They're doing too deliberately to make it lighter and like make, make it like Marvel Jr. or something, Marvel Light, um, because everyone complained that Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman were too dark. Okay, and then Suicide Squad came out. They're like, oh, this is the most watched trailer of all time. Let's hire the guys who edited the trailer with the Queen music and uh, have them re-edit the movie so it's more colorful and fun. And so they did that. And guess what? People still fucking hated it. And so with this movie, they're like, well, we're going to try to not take things quite so serious. And like, dude, it's a whole team up movie of like, of course, it's going to be more fun and like lighthearted. You're not seeing like, oh, the aftermath of a tragedy and introducing another guy who fucking, uh, <laughs> you know, wants to kill him for it. Like, how is that going to be a light story in any case? How are you going to make a Batman versus Superman story that's light and fun. I mean, did you read The Dark Knight Returns? Like, it doesn't... In what scenario is that going to be pleasant? It's not. So, this movie, just by nature of what it is, of course, is going to be that. At the end of Batman vs. Superman, Bruce Wayne says to Diana, he says, I failed him in life. I will not fail him in death. He knew that he had fucked up and... It had weakened Superman and led to these other events. He let Lex get out of hand, and he let this shit happen, and he was not going to let that happen again. He fucked up, so he's uniting the team. He's trying to turn over a new leaf. He's trying to embrace the idealistic person that Bruce was that led him to become Batman, okay, to do the right fucking thing and to stand for something, okay? So that's the guy that we're seeing in this movie. Justice League is still a continuation of exactly what happened in that movie. We're seeing a guy who's trying to uh, uh, embrace those ideals he stood for and trying to lead these guys. The, the talk he has with Flash, he says, just save one person. He's like, I, I don't know how to do battle. Like, I'm, I'm intimidated by this. I don't know what to do. You know, I'm not a superhero. You know, I just run fast. And, and he's like, dude, just save one person. That's all I ask. And then he does it. He's like, oh, my God, I can help. And he, he saves another person. He saves another person. And he sees, you know, like, that's, that's some real mentoring shit that Batman is able to do in this movie about, like, kind of passing on the torch. You know, of course, anything's going to have flaws or even maybe not even flaws, maybe things that you would do differently, you know, if you were writing it. Like there's a weird scene where they try to make some joke. They show a lady on the news like, um, alien stole my husband. And she's talking about some janitor at Star Labs that got taken by a parademon to Steppenwolf. Her curse words are getting bleeped out on the screen. It was just like a weird attempt at humor. And in that same scene, um, like it is funny, but it's out of place when... Martha says to Lois, she's like, yeah, Clark always said you were the thirstiest woman he ever met. And she looks at him and uh, she goes, uh, hungriest, hungriest woman that he's ever met. Talking about her journalism, making a weird accidental sex reference. And, uh, you know, you get like an awkward laugh from the audience. And by the end, so many things happen. You kind of forget about that moment. Like, so there's a couple of like weird attempts at humor in there that don't necessarily need to be there but overall like the way that the characters act and interact i don't even need to say shit about diana because if you saw wonder woman you know it's the best one everyone says it's the best one and um and she's just the goddamn fucking american treasure i love her dude seeing her do the machine gun block with the gauntlets in the beginning the super speed shit and throw the bomb up in the in the sky like oh man that was so good 
Like you're really getting to see another level of her powers now in the third, her third appearance. But I'm not trying to talk about all the characters necessarily just saying that like these main storylines between Batman and Superman that everyone's complaining about, I really just don't think that they've given it any fucking thought or, or they're just not looking at it the right way. So again, this is my wildfire. This is my God paparazzi. This is my like, why do I need to just break this down for you motherfuckers? <laughs> like I'm not going to write a song about it, but that's how I feel about uh, DC universe. And one other thing, um, Hans Zimmer did the music for man of steel, Batman vs Superman, and then retired from comic book movies. And he made some disparaging comment about Ben Affleck and how, uh, because Zimmer had done the, the Dark Knight trilogy, that he felt very attached to Christian Bale's work and that he didn't understand this new angry Ben Affleck character. And he kept shitting on Ben by name in public. And I was like, that's... That's kind of a bad look, dude. I mean, and really, like, Ben's playing the part as written, you know, as as demanded by the script, you know. So this part of his story is not the whole thing. And really, again, he mentioned the anger thing. Like, dude, Bale was the most, like, <laughs> vicious, like, rage-filled Batman we'd ever seen. I remember when Batman Begins when he's holding Flash from the fucking... You know, I swear to God, swear to me. You know, he does that whole thing. And I, I can, I swear to God, I can do that. I just, I have no voice right now. That whole scene was fucking amazing. Or the way he acts with Scarecrow, like he pounds the shit out of people. And we loved that. And guess what? Everybody shat all over it once he started using that voice um, in the other movies because, oh, now he has lines. Everyone says, oh, that voice was so awesome. You know, when Batman Begins came out. But then in the other ones, when he's having conversations with Commissioner Gordon and shit, they're like, oh, why does he talk like that? He sounds so fucking stupid. Granted, they did overcompress the vocal a little bit. They processed a little too much in post. But, like, he's doing the exact same thing that we all loved a couple years earlier. So, again, like, people are never fucking happy. Back to the music. Zimmer. Cool soundtrack for the Dark Knight trilogy. The Bane theme was awesome. It was awesome. Great work. Then he does the the new ones for Snyder. Made that public statement about it. For uh, Justice League, he was supposed to have the guy he collaborated with called Junkie XL. And take it from a guy who has a, a name like Sammy Warmhands. Junkie XL, man, that's... Change your name, please. But they did good work, man, on uh, Batman vs. Superman. And that guy was set to uh, to carry on um, that theme for Justice League. And Zack Snyder had to bow out for uh, personal issues to, uh, during post-production. And Joss Whedon of the Avengers came in and Buffy. He did some reshoots and some rewrites in the film. A lot of people complained about bringing in a different director. Honestly, they could have just put it on hold another, you know, six months probably would have been fine, you know, let Snyder finish what he was doing and give him the time off that he needs. But people would have been mad about that too. Who knows? Um, so Joss Whedon fires Junkie XL and brings on Danny Elfman. And not a whole lot was said about it as far as why or what happened. But I was personally fucking stoked by that news because Danny Elfman, much like Tim Burton with the, uh, 89 and 92 Batman movies that kicked off this whole fucking thing that we're enjoying right now. 
again, um, started right there. Elfman gave, I mean, the best scores. Okay, I mean, it, compare that shit with you know with Star Wars, man. Like it's up there. I'm talking top five ever shit, man. Like. You know, John Williams obviously is is the the Godfather, but Danny fucking Elfman did amazing things with that first Batman. Um, to the extent that they even used a version of that that he composed for the animated series for years in the cartoons, and those cartoons, the Batman animated series, sorry, Batman the animated series, is held in such high regard that most people. Um, Consider that the most accurate canon Batman period. You know, people ask like, oh, who's your favorite uh, Joker? Is it Jack Nicholson or Heath Ledger or Jared Leto? Everyone's like, it's Mark Hamill, you know. And it's like, who's your favorite Batman? Christian Bale or Michael Keaton or Ben Affleck? It's like, no, it's Kevin Conroy, dude, the fucking animated series. Like, that shit uh, was was amazing. Bruce Tim. And uh, Paul Dini, man, they, they, they made amazing stories come to life before our eyes. And Danny Elfman was the linchpin, okay? He even topped his own score, in my opinion. My favorite score of all time is Batman Returns. Because he took all the elements in Batman. But what he did for the Penguin, Danny DeVito's Penguin, is emotional and sad and brooding and... It goes from whimsical to so devastatingly sad, and it's the, just the nuances and, and layers to what he did, uh, particularly in the Penguins' uh, themes, is just fantastic. So when I heard that he was doing the score now, I was ecstatic, okay? And then I saw an interview from him right beforehand, and where he said, um, they asked him, like, so are you going to use the Batman um, theme from Batman vs. Superman? He's like, no, I'm going to use the Batman theme, the only one that's ever existed, the one from uh, from Batman 89 and from the cartoons, the Batman theme. Um, people were like, oh, what a cocky son of a bitch. I'm like, well, yes, but if you take into context what Hans Zimmer said, kind of shitting on Ben Affleck and the franchise, you know, Danny Elfman's going and like, oh, okay, you want to be a bad sport? Well, guess what? I started this fucking shit. And I was really hurt when I went to see the movie from the opening flash of the uh, uh, the DC characters in the intro credits. You're hearing that uh, signature Elfman sound. I'm like, oh my God, this is fucking amazing. Like, I feel like a little kid. I'm so fucking excited. Okay. Elfman did the Spider-Man movies when I was in like high school and just after. And I'm fucking so happy when that happened. Spider-Man 2, another excellent, excellent score. Topped himself again. Look that up. But I'm watching that movie. I'm loving it. And then like here and there in the Batman, uh, scenes you'll just hear even a chord change not even the full part they'll just like i'm like fuck and they'll do those little things just very tastefully very subtly in the background here and there some of them i missed the the first time some of them i missed the first two times and i'm still catching shit um 
on on the third viewing, I was still catching more little parts of the music that were just so clever. And he uses the uh, Hans Zimmer part when they go on the uh, Kryptonian ship. And he uses the John Williams Superman part uh, uh, in two tiny little moments when um, Superman comes back to life. And dude, I'm telling you that John Williams shit, like there's a reason that when Brian Singer made Superman Returns, he said... Um, if he hadn't been given the license to use John Williams' original score, he wouldn't have done the movie. Because that's how fucking good it is. Like, it's the Superman theme. It's the Superman theme. You don't need a new one. Man of Steel was cool. I, I appreciate the music in it. But to bring that that classic shit back, when you're finally seeing the, like, bright blue and red suit and the, like, you know, that, that fucking... Um, boy scout superman back like that's the sound you need to hear when you see that guy because that's who that is like it it was fucking awesome and after the first viewing of the film i went home and i was disappointed because i listened to uh i wanted to hear the music better uh, when i'm not paying attention to the dialogue and the action and so i listened to the score on youtube and i was really um disappointed that all of the comments were people shitting on Danny Elfman and saying like that he's terrible and this is the worst and what a tr- fucking atrocity that they um, replaced Hans Zimmer and Hans Zimmer and Hans Zimmer and Hans Zimmer and Hans Zimmer. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, oh, like, okay. These are people who like never saw like a Batman movie until like the Dark Knight came out or something. And they keep talking about like, don't, don't you know he did the fucking Nolan films? And don't you know he did all this and that? And, and like, who is this fucking guy? I'm like, who is this fucking guy? He's the fucking Batman guy. He's the fucking Spider-Man guy. He's the OG, man. Like, he's the one who kicked all this shit off. And so I just felt like that was an incredible, like, disrespect. And part of it's probably a generation gap. And I know you never read the YouTube comments. You shouldn't do that to yourself. But I went to the second showing alone, and I was like, oh, man, uh, you know, I just want to to engage with other people who who are excited about this like me, you know, like people I follow on Instagram that are cosplayers. I watched the entire uh, red carpet walk from the premiere because these cosplayers that I follow were there in the front row and they got to get, you know, the guy who's dressed like Batman and he got to get his, his fucking gauntlet signed um, by all the uh, Justice League actors, you know, because he was in the front row and they're live streaming this shit, you know, like I'm that kind of fan. Like I want to be in there and experiencing it and sharing this with people and fucking like... How fun is this? And so when I went with my brother last night, it was like, yes, we both got to hang out afterwards and like talk about how fucking exciting it was. And um, I, I just wish that we live in a climate where it's just okay to like have fun at the movies, man. I love movies and I love actors and I love a good director and a good screenwriter and like whatever, but, but, take all of the good things in these movies and they don't add up to bullshit, okay? They don't add up to a fucking flop, a mistake. You know, they add up to a whole lot of cool stories and maybe they're not your favorite version of it or whatever, but don't treat it like it's, you know, The Room or something. Shout out to Franco. I can't wait to see The Disaster Artist this week, but like, don't don't treat it like that. It deserves better than that, okay? The characters deserve better fans than you, all right? The people making these films are better fans than you. So 
cut them a break, enjoy these fucking movies, and just be glad that we get to see these, and that in a couple of years, when this series is done, we'll get to see another one, and and we're going to get to see the Matt Reeves Batman series, and we're going to get to see Wonder Woman 2, because everyone on the fucking planet loves Gal Gadot, and they should, and Infinity War is coming in that trailer, oh my god, okay? So many good things. It's a great time to be a fan of comics, to be a fan of movies. It's a great, great time. Enjoy it with me. That's all I'm saying. Enjoy it with me. Now go see The Last Jedi on December 15th, right? Fuck. No, really, though. Go see Justice League, man. Give it an honest shot. Like, like I think you'll have fun. If you don't have fun, at least in like... Half a dozen of those scenes where you're not like laughing out loud and fucking like, you know, your your five-year-old inside like jumping up and down. There's something wrong with you. There's something seriously, seriously wrong with you. Just check your baggage at the door and enjoy a good film. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you made it this far all the way to the end. I know it's a different kind of episode, but uh, thank you so much. This is something that I care about. You know, if you're a casual fan, you might have noticed the Batman references laced into the rap verses. But um, if you like the show, please subscribe, uh, share the link, give us a good rating. Um, like I said, I got plenty of new music coming for 2018. We're going to do something for the 10-year anniversary of The Illusionist. Got a new solo album that's going to come. I got a new book. And I'll have a dead fucking serious album follow-up to Squalor. It's all coming 2018. And you know what? We're going to do some more of these podcast interviews. So uh, I'm going to get back in the swing of things. Thank you guys for your patience. Thank you for your ongoing support and loyalty. And take care. Oh, you're still here? How fucking cool was the post-credits scene? Never mind the race, which was rad. But... The Lex Luthor scene on the yacht. Holy fucking shit. Again, talk about character arc. People talk shit on Jesse Eisenberg that he wasn't Lex Luthor, but fucking you're seeing what he had to go through to become the fucking evil genius that we know and love. It's coming. If you guys don't fucking ruin the franchise with all your complaints, it's coming. I can't fucking wait.